It's time for Getting Down to Business with Mark Mondo. This new show discusses trends, technology, and tactics to help the listener learn more about improving sales, saving money, and fulfilling a personal mission through entrepreneurship. On today's show, we'll interview performer, teacher, and movement master Amanda Blair McDonald about her solopreneur career. But first, a word from our underwriter. Welcome to Getting Down to Business with Mark Mondo on WVLP 103.1 FM. I'm your host, Mark Mondo. We're on the air in Valparaiso, Indiana, and you can listen to us streaming on the website at wvlp.org or use the TuneIn app on your mobile device and look for WVLP. 103.1 FM WVLP is a local nonprofit radio station based in Valparaiso, Indiana. This show, like many of the shows on WVLP, are made possible by the generosity of donors and underwriters. We accept donations at WVLP.org. Simply click on the Support tab and make a one-time donation or sustained pledge to WVLP. All donations are tax-deductible. Underwriters are made up of businesses and organizations that support the shows on WVLP. Getting down to business with Mark Mondo would like to thank Homes by Hortensia, a Coldwell Banker affiliate in Porter County, Indiana, for their support. Homes by Hortensia has served the region's residential real estate needs in Indiana for over 12 years. Contact Hortensia Moreno or Tiffany Zorio at 219-249-5118 or visit homesbyhortensia.com. Homes by Hortensia, habla español. Welcome to the show. In case you're a new listener, here is my backstory, and I'm sticking to it. I've been a consultant for small businesses for the last 25 years, helping small businesses implement customer relationship management software, aka a CRM system, where I learn their business processes and customize the software to help them gain an advantage in sales, marketing, or customer service. But there's much more to becoming a success in business than just having a good CRM system. That's why I bring on guests to tell their stories and share tips on technology, tactics, or trends they use to become successful. So let's get into it and introduce everyone here today. To one side is the producer. She's the star soprano, and she's my wife, Mrs. Cynthia Zimmerman. Hello, hello. And on the other side is another star soprano, is Amanda Blair McDonald. She's an embodiment educator, speaker, and consultant based in Chicago. Amanda uses embodiment practices to teach skills for self-mastery. Her students learn to think more clearly, move more freely, and nimbly adjust to life's changes. She incorporates the Alexander Technique Developmental Movement LABAN, I hope I pronounced that correctly, Movement Pattern Analysis, and Brain-Compatible Pedagogy, I think I said that badly, into a full range of offerings in person and online. Amanda especially enjoys working with speakers, educators, performing artists, and artists at heart. In addition to her private practice, Amanda serves as adjunct faculty at DePaul University, Roosevelt University, and University of Illinois at Chicago. Amanda is also the national membership chair and on the board at AMSAT, which is the American Society 
or the Alexander Technique. You can reach element you can reach Amanda at amandablairmcdonald.com and on Linktree at linkter l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e forward slash abm ac like ab mac d as in david 53. welcome amanda thank you so much i'm glad to be here well as i have done in previous episodes performing arts and teaching professionals provide a really different perspective on making a successful career than my upbringing my family had a couple businesses including landscaping snow plowing cable television installations at the city level. They weren't the cable, my dad wasn't the cable guy. He was the guy in the back scenes putting all the cables into the villages. He also owned a computer-aided design service bureau or CAD service bureau in the 80s, a print shop, and finally evolved into commercial real estate. Music or the arts never fell into the equation. So that's why I find interviewing colleagues from Cynthia's performing arts realm always more interesting and insightful when discussing entrepreneurship. So let's, I got the first question I got is, all right, Amanda, I really don't know what you do. What is an, I still don't know what an Alexander (laughs) technique. I've spent time with you on these trips. I hear you sing, you're a star, you know, I know your backstory, you were doing singing and performing in New York, and that's how you met Dan. I really don't know the rest of the story here. Help the rest of us. Glad to. And Mark, it's not unusual. I actually spend a lot of time talking about what it is that I do. Basically, I'm an educator. I'm a teacher. And right now I teach, I have a private practice and I teach at several different universities as adjunct faculty. Through the years, I've done a number of things. I've taught a lot of different age groups and a lot of different settings. But the two main things that I teach are Alexander Technique and Laban. So Alexander Technique is a series of principles that have to do with how thought becomes movement. So we're looking at the very fundamentals of how we move and what patterns are helpful to what we want to do and what patterns get in the way. Patterns, or you could think of them as habits. What habits help us, what habits get in our way, and then using both hands-on, gentle hands-on guidance and verbal instruction, working through ways to repattern our movement so that we can move more freely, breathe more freely, and because we are a whole person, not a separate mind and body, the the so-called body is a window into how we think. It's a window into our nervous system. So the calming of the nervous system helps calm the thoughts, helps us um, be really clear in our thinking. We switch from fight, flight, and our reactionary reptilian brain into our more modern, uh, ability to, to consciously choose how to react to things. And so even though it looks like it's body work, it's really whole person work. But because it's a set of principles and not a set of exercises, it's not as readily av- uh, observable as say, you know, if you look into a window and you see a yoga class, you know that's a yoga class, or you know something is a Pilates class 
or you know people are doing ballet, right? Because it, you can look at the kinds of movement they're doing. Because Alexander Technique is a set of principles, different teachers teach with different kinds of movement. And so each class will look a little different from another class. So it's not as readily observable. You forgot to add one more of the movements. So somebody in this room just finished knee surgery and mm. a series of rehab. Mm -hmm. That would be me. Mm -hmm. The medial meniscus is no more in my mm. right knee. Mm. So Cynthia has been watching me go through rehab. I finished the main course of rehabilitation. You know, the bandages are off. The scar, I mean, the surgery part is the technology is amazing. I, I have like two little dimples for scars. I mean, you can't even see them. They're like not even half inch each. Mm. But I think they've been helping me rehab my gait mm -hmm. and rehab muscle strength. So I'll be working on quad strength, even though mm -hmm. it looks like it doesn't look like I have atrophy, but they put these exercises on my either a step down or a step up and go, oh, try that. Ow. Wait, why is that working badly? <laughs> you know, so it's really interesting to experience. Interesting, I think is the interesting word to say, but to experience that weakness has mm -hmm. been difficult. I'll, I'll definitely say it. Maybe that's mm -hmm. a mind-body principle. I, I've not been, I've been a, an athlete most of my days and now I've got to think about what's next. Mm -hmm. So one of my favorite things to do actually is help people with their physical therapy exercises. So, um, in Alexander Technique, one of the things that makes us unique is that we look at the overall pattern of the whole system, and we especially prioritize the relationship between the head, neck, and shoulders. Uh, Alexander called that the primary control or the primary pattern. And we work in such a way that if your head, neck, and shoulders are uh, well-coordinated and well-integrated, then the rest of you can then coordinate and integrate. So say, Mark, if you brought your PT exercises for your knee to me, I could watch you do them and then give you tips on things like alignment and freedom and ease and, and movement in different muscle groups besides just your leg mm -hmm. that would make those exercises more effective. Very cool. So now you're bringing it to the rest of us. Right. You know, like so I'm not, yeah, I'm not a PT mm -hmm. and I'm not a medical professional. Okay. I'm an educator, but I can see a lot of this, the things and there's a lot of sort of crossover between myself and physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech language therapists, those types of people that I can sort of support and enrich their work. So you were an artist first or an Alexander Technicist, technician first? I was an artist first. Uh, I came up in school, in high school, I was all in for marching band, but that was partly because I was a musician. It was also partly because my particular school did not have a, a, a chorus. It did not have a regular theater program. And so all of my artistic um, 
outlet was marching band at the high school. And then at summer camp, I learned how to play guitar and become the music leader. So that those were my artistic outlets as a kid. And then in college, I majored in theater with an emphasis in music. Uh, I was almost a double major in theater and music. And then I moved to New York City where I went to a musical theater conservatory. And when I came out of that, I worked as an actor for a while in the musical theater. So, um, so yes, I was a performing artist first. And along the way, I was coming across uh, different areas to study, different modalities. And I was really interested in finding a portable skill that I could use to make money when I was traveling as an actor, because it was very often I would put all myself, all my things in storage and go on a tour for nine months or sublet my apartment and go do summer stock for the whole summer. And so I was looking for different ways to, to make money to add to my actor's salary. And I tried yoga and I thought, oh, I really love yoga, but I don't know that I want to teach it. I tried Pilates, same thing. I was trying all these different things. And then I found Alexander Technique and I thought this, this is it. <laughs> and not only was I finding Alexander Technique really helpful to apply to my own work as a performing artist to, to support my improvement in my art. Um, I also found that when I started finding opportunities to teach, that it gave me a different way to approach teaching that was different than a lot of the other teachers that I was working with. And so what started happening was I would go away and perform, and then I would come home and a friend would ask me to sub for their class. And mm -hmm. the people at that school would like my approach and they would offer me my own class. And this happened back and forth for several years until uh, I was being offered enough teaching that it started to replace the performing. And really, I found a different kind of satisfaction in teaching. Uh, and I was mostly teaching in conservatory situations. So I was working with actors and dancers and singers. So it enabled me to stay in the business without having to constantly be auditioning and leaving town again. So over several years, I gradually transitioned from mostly performer to mostly teacher. That is the polar opposite of my life. <laughs> the, well, I, I just, I, I find it interesting. Your path almost was very organic in a way. And, and you just knew once you found the Alexander technique, that that's the path you wanted to take. And when you first shared that with me many years ago, because we've met each other through Christchurch Choir, and her husband is one of the uh, tenor section leaders of our choir. So we know each other very well now. And I did take a session, a semester of Alexander Technique in undergrad when I was studying opera because my, fortunately, my voice teacher was the head of the department and she felt that singers need to know about movement and how their bodies should naturally move on the stage, how it affects their voice. And I just found it a very fascinating class because it wasn't like this extreme change of thought. If nothing else, it came away of there being more conscious of how I moved, why I moved, and making better choices. 
And so, yeah, I was very impressed when I found out that you were an Alexander Technique uh, master, so to speak. <laughs> so what is the difference between Alexander Technique and Laban? So Rudolf Laban was a teacher in Europe, the early 1900s, a World War II era. Mm -hmm. And he developed a taxonomy for describing movement. And he also developed what was called Laban notation, which was a way of notating movement in the days before we had video. And so he created different categories of movement and different language to describe those categories of movement. For example, one area of movement is called effort. And so you could have strong effort or increasing pressure, and you can have light effort, also called decreasing pressure. You can have um, quick or slow, which could also be called increasing uh, speed or accelerating and decelerating. There's another area that centers around the category of body. So things like which body part is moving. You have things like the size of the movement. So if you reach your arm, you could reach your arm really far or you could reach your arm really small and close to you. There are, you know, a number of different categories and then all the, the various subcategories. So his taxonomy of movement uh, is so very helpful in a lot of different fields. And one of the things that he would do is people would come to study with him and then they'd get interested in one particular area of his work and he would give them his blessing and send them off to expand on his work in their own way. So Laban is used a great deal in dance programs and theater programs. And that's actually where I use my Laban training a, a great deal is uh, you can use the Laban taxonomy for helping actors create physical characters. So create on stage people who move differently than they do. So you could be an actor who sort of plays yourself all the time just a different character name, or you could be an actor who really transforms yourself to play a different physicality of person on stage. And, and we all, you know, sort of know is some of these examples in the movies where there are people who just really transform themselves completely. Uh, you almost don't recognize them because they are able to do that. And so the, the Laban taxonomy creates, um, a way in which to do this. So it's not just guesswork. It's not just, oh, somebody spontaneously created this physicality. No, they actually looked at the script, analyzed the script, spent some time exploring, found things about the character, used the taxonomy to, to specifically lay on particular kinds of movements. So for example, you know, if you've got a 30 something year old who their character needs to age during the course of the play. How does their movement change as they age? Would their posture change? Would the speed change? Would the weight and heaviness of how they move change? And, and then you can, it, it's actually really fun to get in the studio with, with theater students and explore this way. A lot of fun. Do you have any, and, hmm. oh, any con 
simple, concrete example for the layman that has used that pattern well. Uh, there's a running joke between Cynthia and I of the least her least favorite actor. And we know this actor only plays one character, one archetype every single time. Cynthia, do you care to name this actor? Oh, you're on mute. I was in silent protest. <laughs> oh. I don't want to have to say, but I will say Tom Cruise. And people love Tom Cruise. And people and love are, Tom Cruise. There are people who do that and they make a huge career. And right. I am not criticizing that at all. Mm -hmm. And you have all sorts of other people who are able to transform themselves. You've, you know, you've got the Meryl Streeps of the world who really transform themselves. There are a whole list of them. I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now, but well, well, I, I like Tom Hanks, which he does not like. So hmm. there you go. Hmm. Now Revenge. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that Tom Hanks is does as much physical change, but he does in some ways in the way that he delivers his voice and his stature. I would say definitely is heads above what Tom Cruise could do in that kind of art form. But One of the things that Tom Hanks did was Polar Express. Yes. And even though it's an animated film, he played most of the male roles in that film and they attached electrodes to him to do mm -hmm. motion capture. And for that film, he created very different physicalities mm -hmm. for each role that wow. he played. You know, so he's the sort of vagabond, the creepy vagabond guy that keeps mm -hmm. showing up, who's got a very different posture than the train conductor, who's very upright and energetic and, yeah. That, Trustworthy, that's, yes. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> well, and I would think with these kind of techniques, you're also preventing injury or long-term damage to an actor's physique or voice even. So there is a really interesting place where Alexander Technique and Laban can support each other. I actually, when I, I, I trained to be what's called a movement pattern analyst, which mm -hmm. is one branch of Laban that connects our movement patterns with our cognitive processes. But along the way of working with the language of Laban, I started taking that language into my Alexander classes to help describe what people were experiencing. So one of the things in life is that most of us use a lot more effort to do activities than we really need. And so I use the Laban terminology of increasing pressure and decreasing pressure to describe effort because you need a different amount of effort to pick up a pencil than you need to pick up a heavy box. So Alexander Technique is not just about walking around light all the time, it's about adjusting your effort to make it appropriate to the activity that you are attempting to do, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a spectrum of increasing pressure and decreasing pressure, then you can work with that so that you don't injure yourself. You know, for example, a, a violinist works in extreme spirals. Their arm, their arm that they use to finger the strings mm -hmm. is in a really extreme spiral. And then they turn their head and nod their chin down onto that rest. 
And then meanwhile, the other hand is the bow arm. And there has to be a lot of mobility in that bow arm. And the tendency is to squeeze the head, lock the neck, squeeze the shoulder to hold and stabilize that violin so that the other side can be mobile. But what ends up happening is that then their fingers get jammed and their wrists get in pain and their neck gets in pain. And so one of the things we talk about is how much effort do you really need to stabilize that violin? Can you use a little less effort and get some inner freedom going within that shape and still have the stability that you need to be able to bow, right? And I, then that's mm -hmm. gonna that's gonna decrease pain and it's gonna prevent future pain. I've also seen, I think, some violinists that some just use the very shallow chin rest that is built into the instrument and others have put on braces that make it higher mm -hmm. so they don't have to dip down their neck and their chin so mm -hmm. far. And I think that's a smart idea because then they're taking that pressure off that location. Um, because it's, it's hard. I think viol I think the positioning of playing some instruments is harder just because it's not naturally anatomically correct mm -hmm. for your mm -hmm. body to hold it for long periods of time and do very mm -hmm. difficult fingering mm -hmm. and blowing or stringing, yeah. you know, and it's it's very interesting because when I look at uh, string bass players and they have the huge instrument, but they're sitting on a you know, they're sitting on a stool, they've got it kind of resting between them, and maybe they have to lean over it and they might get arched back and shoulder issues, but it seems like a much more relaxed uh, relationship, mm -hmm. even more than a cello player. So yeah, every, every instrument sort of has its own requirements. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the this is Aww, where I use. Okay, yes. we're gonna have. You're gonna have to introduce those sweet little meows. I think oh. you have two cats, right? I this do. If they come around remote, the corner. <laughs> yeah, this is part of the remote studio benefits here. Yeah. So who is, is who is in the background, Amanda? Well, she's around the corner, little Rufio. Oh, here she comes. Oh, she's running away. <laughs> I have a brother <laughs> and sister. They were our pandemic kitties. Oh, <laughs> sweet, sweet. If they come back, I'll invite them to join. <laughs> so each, each instrument has its own requirements. And this is another place where I use Laban taxonomy to inform the Alexander class. So I talk about the difference between outer shape and inner flow. And most of us think that we make a shape or we make it, we get aligned or we sit up straight. We have this idea of posture and that it's a held thing. And then we grip ourselves on the inside to hold that thing that we think is right. But that's not really how we're designed to work. And that will cause fatigue. It causes us to um, breathe more shallowly or hold our breath completely. It causes us to grip our neck. It might cause some headaches or that kind of thing. And so I talk a lot about how can we have what looks like outer stillness, but still have a little bit of inner movement on the inside so that the breath can flow, so that if I turn my head that way, my shoulders can respond instead of being locked against it. If I have my, my cello or my bass leaning against me, can I accept that instrument into my chest just a little bit 
I'm not slouching, but I'm allowing myself to enclose around the instrument. That's another Laban term. Enclose around the instrument just a little bit because I'm using my arms in front of me. So we're always shifting. There's no one right position for any activity. And that's why I actually named my private practice Balance Rebalance. Because if we stay alive on the inside, we're constantly rebalancing ourselves in tune with the needs of the moment. Before we get into the next segment, we wanted to let you know you're listening to Getting Down to Business with Mark Mondo on WVLP 103.1 FM, a community radio station out of Valparaiso, Indiana. Thanks for listening, and let's continue. So, so th that's those kinds of things are the ways I use Laban to support my Alexander work. And then going the other direction, if I'm using my Alexander work to support in the Laban classroom, say I'm working with a group of actors and they are developing characters, then I'll take a look. They'll, they will develop sort of a movement series for a character where they're exploring how that character might move. And then I'll take a look at it and we'll talk about, okay, so how much of that movement is needed to have the character be fully expressed and how much can we take away so that it doesn't block your ability to breathe freely, put unnecessary pressure on your vocal cords so that you, you, know, you don't you wanna wear out your voice. If you are in a, a posture that is slumped or curved in some way, can you create that shape without so much inner pressure so that you tell the story without damaging yourself? And that becomes really important, especially if you are, say, doing a show eight times a week, right? If you're repeating this over and over and over again, you need to be able to manage yourself so that you can do that repetition and still maintain the um, longevity of your health and your career. That's so important. It <laughs> is so important. Look what we get. We watch Netflix and all the work these actors and actresses are doing to get to this. So for ten, stop bitching about your 10 bucks a month. <laughs> actors spend a lifetime training. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. it's a it's an ongoing thing because you're always learning and and things won't always come to you in the classroom. It might come during a show two mm -hmm. years from now um, or even 15 years. It, it really depends. Some of my best aha moments are when I'm not even thinking about my singing mm -hmm. or performing anything in the arts. And I'm just either walking or I'm driving and I've turned off the radio in my car and I'll suddenly free my mind on unspinown to me and then I'll be like oh that makes really great sense <laughs> it just took me 12 years to get there because right. I wasn't allowing myself to really digest it and work on it whatever that point was to be so yeah. to be a performer and having to you know constantly work on training those tools so they're there for you when you need them um that's that's discipline mm -hmm. and do you find these days based on when you and I were in college, that this is becoming more of the norm 
in the performing arts uh, institutes when they're training students, whatever their discipline is, that this is some part of the curriculum? The, it seems to me that, yes, colleges and universities are expanding their programs. Some of them have Alexander Technique. Some of them have wellness focus where they uh, bring in things like yoga and Feldenkrais and other things. Some of them will bring in specialists in performance anxiety and people who come specifically to do audition prep. So it, it does seem to me like it, it's expanded from just learn how to sing, learn how to act, learn how to dance to a whole sort of broad spectrum of how do you manage yourself out in the world once you're out there in the business. Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. that's great to hear because that wasn't all there when I was going through it. <laughs> that's for sure. So how did you, how did you, I know when I met you, you were getting your master's, working full time, and, and I think also still choreographing at one point. And I was just amazed at all the balls that you had in the air and your, you know, full-time wife, mother. And so uh, I was just very impressed that not only did you have these specialties in your, in your bag, but you also did a TED Talk and you started your own business. So how did that evolve? And based on your experience as a performer, then becoming a teacher and, and getting specialized in your field. What made you decide you wanted to start your own business? And how did you get on TED Talk? That's, that's a lot of information. <laughs> we, got, um, we got a lot of time. <laughs> so I had been out in the world working as a performer. I was doing a lot of uh, touring. And someone I met on one of my tours ran a, a theater company in Olympia, Washington. And I was living in New York at the time. So he would call me up and ask me to recommend choreographers. They like to bring in New York choreographers for their program. And their program was they, they had a children's theater, a very high level children's theater in the summer. And then they had semi-professional theater with, with adults and teenagers uh, during the year. So I would recommend my friends. And one year he called me and he said, you always recommend other people, you never recommend yourself. I think you have it in you to be a choreographer, why don't you come out and work for me? And at that point I had done a few little small, made a few little small dances for things and taught a few sort of master classes when I would go home for the holidays or something. But this was my first big opportunity to give it a shot. So I went out for the summer and I choreographed, oh gosh, I don't even know, like seven shows in one oh summer. <laughs> wow. And then he invited me to stay for the fall and I choreographed two more and performed in them. And it was a really wonderful experience because I, I always knew that I had sort of a, 
the kind of brain that could see the big picture and think about sort of the arc of a storyline. And being the choreographer allowed me to experience that. So I would work hand in hand with the director of each show and I would develop the dances. And of course, in musical theater, a dance is not just a dance. A dance always, a, a well done dance always forwards the story. So you're responsible for physically expressing the music and continuing to tell the story, right? So I discovered I had a really good head for that. And that was actually the same summer that I began to transition into teaching because he said, you know, I can only pay you X amount, but you could earn some extra money by teaching some classes and I'll give you the space for free to teach some classes on the side. So I started teaching and that was the same summer that I started taking Alexander lessons and it all sort of coalesced for me. So by the end of that summer, I knew I wanted to be a, an Alexander teacher. And, but in order to be an Alexander teacher, you have to train for three years. It's, it's like a master's degree, but it's not taught at a university. It's taught in um, private studios. Like a foundation or a nonprofit that kind of well, is the judge and jury of it. Right. Well, the American Center or the American Society for the Alexander Technique has standards mm -hmm. and has associated training directors who apply to be an AMSAT training program. And then they have to adhere to these standards. And we align our standards with um, a global network of other societies around the world. Um, so, so we all adhere to the same standards. And I knew that if I was going to enter this three-year training program, I was going to have to be willing to stop auditioning. And it took, it took me a couple of years to be ready to do that. So what I would do is I would audition, I would perform, I would go out and choreograph for a couple of months, I would take some more Alexander lessons. And then eventually I was sort of prepared to take a break. And what I did was I trained every morning and then I would teach afternoons and evenings while I was training. And that was my transition from performer to teacher. So at the time I was teaching at three different, three or four different, I was running around town between four different um, conser conservatories. I was teaching at the American Academy of Dramatic Art. I was teaching at the American Musical and Dramatic Academy, which was where I had attended when I first moved to New York. I was teaching at the Ailey School, and I was teaching in the dance program at the 92nd Street Y. And it was just, it was such a great experience because I would take what I was working on in Alexander Technique every morning, and then I would see like, how can I bring this knowledge into my other teaching? And I had a lot of flexibility at those places to do that. It, so I, I was able to really expand and expand and expand. And in the meantime, I also studied at the 92nd Street Wise Dance Education Laboratory. And that's where I was first introduced to Laban. And I was introduced to something called brain compatible dance education or brain compatible lesson planning, which was created by a woman named Anne Green Gilbert. So this, this was a really foundational and formational time for me. A few years later, when I moved to Chicago, because of the 
connections that I had and didn't have, I wasn't able to find teaching at that conservatory college level. So I ended up teaching in the K-12 environment quite a lot. First as a teaching artist, and later I had a full-time position at a school. But I really missed teaching at the university level. But I didn't have a master's degree. I had a master's equivalent, but I didn't have a master's degree. And I, I sort of, it took several years again for me to think, do I really want to do this? Do I want to put in the time and the effort and the money to go back to school again to get a master's degree? Or so, so can I be happy doing what I'm doing? So the, like the Alexander Tech, you talk, your one master's like Alexander Technique, but it's not accredited by the state. Right. So you had to go either to, you know, university, I'll name my favorite one, Loyola for a master's, <laughs> for a master's in I don't think they have anything like that at Loyola, any program. And they, mm -hmm. I didn't really see a performing arts. There, Loyola really wasn't about that. There was a theater program, but I don't remember much else. Yeah. Well, what happened was I went to the conference for the National Dance Education Organization. And I attended a workshop being led by a fellow Alexander teacher, Luke Vanier, who was at the time the director of the graduate program at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. And he was doing really, really interesting work around Alexander technique and developmental movement. And Milwaukee had a program that was a low residency master's degree for dancers who were, most of us were already teachers so it wasn't a program for people who wanted to be professional performers. It was a program for people who were dancers and teachers and who needed um, the master's degree credential to continue their teaching or to expand their teaching. So that program was, we would be on campus in the summertime. And then during the year, all our classes were online. And so this was the perfect fit for me because one, he was an Alexander teacher leading the program. So even though it was a master's in dance, I could go study with him parallel to my master's degree. And I didn't have to move my family in order to do oh, the yeah. program. That would be quite disruptive. So they were in Chicago at the time and so you're kind of virtually right, so, going to Milwaukee. Yep. Yeah. So though, by the way, yes, by the way, by that time I had moved to Chicago. So I went to Milwaukee for the summer. And my original intention was to keep teaching my full-time job while I did my online classes during the year. But as the summer went on, it became really clear to me that if I was gonna get everything that I wanted to get out of this program, I couldn't, I just couldn't do both. So at the end of that summer, I resigned from my full-time teaching position, but the school asked me to stay on teaching after-school classes, which I said yes to. I already had relationships with all of these families, all of these students. So I would do all of my classwork during the day. And then in the afternoons, I would go and teach after-school. And that's what I did until I finished my degree. And it's an MFA, which is considered a terminal degree. So if I had gotten an MA, I would have then had to continue to a PhD. Oh. 
what I needed yeah. was a terminal degree so that I could teach at the college level. Yes. So I got an MFA and my last summer in that program, I took a Laban class and that's where I got interested in Laban. And before I had even finished my thesis for my MFA, I did the certification in movement pattern analysis. And I really hit it off with my Laban teacher who actually was a Chicago based teacher. She teaches at the theater school at DePaul. And I asked her to be my, one of my thesis advisors. And then she started bringing me in to sub for her at the theater school at DePaul, which meant I was an employee of DePaul and I got all of their newsletters. And lo and behold, one of the newsletters said, hey, we're taking applications for the DePaul TEDx program. Here's what you need to do if you want to apply. <laughs> that's so that's what I did. I, I sent in, I, I was newly, or I was just about certified in MPA. I was subbing at the school. I applied to do the TEDx. Uh, and by the time the TEDx happened, the Alexander Technique teacher at the School of Music was retiring from his classes. And I was already there. I was already an employee. I had my master's degree. I was a musician, which was one of the requirements. Um, and I applied for the job. And then I started getting my own classes at the School of Music. So again, a very sort of organic progression. But I think it was because I was very open and seeking opportunity. You know, things weren't just following and falling into my lap passively. I was constantly seeking these opportunities, um, partly seeking to expand myself, my lifelong learning, my curiosity about what makes people tick, and partly because I was looking for opportunities to teach at the university level. And so, I think long story. Just, yeah, no, but it's it's a great story because it shows how, you know learning is lifelong. And if you have goals, you have to be ready for when those opportunities come up or the opportunity to, or for you to be open because you feel prepared that you can look and say, oh, that that's a possibility right there. Or let me go talk to that teacher because they're in a field that I'm interested in. Um, and from like our past guests, I think the ones that impressed me the most were the ones who are constantly learning uh, working on their craft, working on their trade. And it happened through networking or a conversation they had, but they were seeking. Um, they weren't waiting for things to come to them. And I, I think in any career, especially if you're like a solopreneur, like you like to call yourself an entrepreneur, where it's you, you are the product, you are, you know, you are the business, you have to be the seeker you cannot be the seeky and think, well, I'll just have a really nice website. I've got my credentials and just sit back and wait for the phone to ring. Oh, wait, that's, that's what I'm doing. No. <laughs> I got a cool website you know, yeah. and, some, and some creds. But no, I mean, this is really why we have to not just talk about what worked for me. I mean, if you're in the arts, I mean, with Cynthia's network it's so different than than my upbringing and i like to joke about it but you know somebody in the arts if you're listening and you're in the arts community there's a path you don't all 
we all don't get to be, I, I think, you know, I've said this a few episodes, like a Taylor Swift. There's not just one path to performance to be successful. Right. There's, and, and not everybody wants fame. I, th- I think if, not, if anything else, the majority of people in the arts want to be able to fulfill their passion and continue to pursue it throughout their life. And that can go down many different avenues, um, you know, to, to have that kind of Hollywood success, fame mindset as the only means of saying I'm successful in the arts is it's pretty sad. And I did have that going into it. I wouldn't have said that to myself, but looking back, I think in my undergrad, I really thought, well, I'll do all this and then I'll, you know, I'll get into some really great breakout role in a musical theater and I'm on my way. And I learned very quickly that that just was not realistic. And and it's also, I think I've said that metaphor a lot. Like I, my passion was playing soccer. I mean, mm-hmm. for me to get into the pros and that was only one way to do it and one you know, only one avenue, it's really hard <laughs> to get at the pro level. I mean, there's mm-hmm. millions of people that play. And I think I, I've been watching your journey over the years, Cynthia, you know, and now Amanda as well, and Luis and Tina, you know, how how to be, you know, be successful without necessarily being a, a home a home brand, like a, I keep picking on the Taylor Swift. Okay, I'll go t- Grateful Dead or Iron Maiden or some other household name of music. Well, maybe Iron Maiden is a household name, but uh, Grateful Dead. We'll go with Grateful Dead. There you go. You know, and you also have to know your personality is, is that's not the kind of career I wanted anyway. I did not really seek fame. I just wanted to be able to be at the, at the top of my game, I guess, so to speak, as a performer. But I realized I also didn't have the nerves for all the auditioning after a while. It just got to be too much. So it's, you know, it's finding out what, what you're really good at, where you feel you can be the best at it um, with your gifts you've been given and, you know, to be seeking instead of being, you know, a seeky seeker. So um, how did Ted, the Ted talk get you fame or did it, or how did it, (laughs) I mean, that's a household thing. I mean, a Ted talk, I mean, somebody hits the Ted talk circuit. It's, that's pretty darn impressive. We, I've got to get a hold of one other lady who made the TED circuit as well. Yeah, I hope to get her on the show hopefully in January. Uh, but she came for a whole different path. She was a business coach and she experienced grief and uh, some serious grief. And then her her story arc is about the rebound from there. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's the kitty right here. Rufio came to say hello. Oh, hi, Rufio. What TEDx did for me was open a lot of doors to conversations and opportunity and and give me some credibility. Uh, I keep the link in my email signature and I have available, you know, in other places on my social media accounts and embedded on my website and that sort of thing. And it enables people to see me in action, to get a feel for what I'm like as a person to talk to uh, and to get a feel for my level of expertise and area of expertise. So that has really been the the biggest benefit from that activity. It was really fun. DePaul does a really lovely job with their TEDx program. 
in that they provide a coach. If you get selected to be one of the TEDx speakers, you get a coach to work with you. And so I got, I think, three meetings with this coach. So I was able to work on my talk, bring it, do it, get some feedback, go away, work on it a little bit more, bring it, do it. Um, and then their production values are just outstanding. So I was really grateful to be able to have that opportunity and to be challenged to stretch myself that way, you know, to stand up and talk for that many minutes without a script to a whole auditorium full of people was really exciting. And I had been teaching a lot by that point. Plus, as an embodiment professional, what I do is I work with people to help them learn the skills to be able to do things like get up and talk with people. And so I really was able to show that, you know, I'm not just teaching it, I'm, I'm walking the walk, I'm talking the talk. And it also opened doors to other opportunities to speak. So during the pandemic, I was invited to give a keynote for the DePaul Women's Network, and I uh, spoke at a number of online conferences, and that's when I was doing some other podcast interviews. And it was really fun. I, I love doing that kind of thing. Well, I think so in our meeting before we started recording, actually for you, always to me, you've, you had a very busy career, a very productive but busy career. Mm -hmm. And one one thing you said was actually COVID was a good thing for you in the sense that when we were all required to stay isolated and in our homes, um, many people found that to be a hard adjustment. I know I did. eventually got to enjoy it. But share with us your experience during COVID and what you learned from that experience. What's, if you, any new skills, maybe technology that you used during that time? Absolutely. Um, I, I found that after so many years of running around town to different locations, being in the car, taking my daughter different places, that kind of thing, suddenly being at home, I had a lot more energy because I wasn't running around all over the place. And I was also able to really stay focused because I was in the same location all the time. Um, and I, Alexander Technique uh, is largely an in-person hands-on method or has been historically. And especially for most private practitioners, they make their living one-on-one -on -one and in small groups doing hands-on work. So all of a sudden, we had to pivot as a field. Mm -hmm. And so I really, right from the beginning, jumped in, both in my position as membership chair of the teachers organization and in my own private practice, learning about the technology that it would take to pivot to teaching online and some skills. You know, you have to work very differently if you're leading a group online and you can't see their whole body and you can't put your hands on them. You know, you have to teach in a very different way. And then taking what I was learning and sharing them with my fellow teachers and providing a platform for our teacher members to share with each other. Um, so it was a really creative time. My family was at home. My husband set up his office in the living room. My daughter was in her room and I was back in our master bedroom and we rearranged all the furniture so that I could have teaching space. And I was teaching both Alexander Technique and dance, which have different 
demands. Mm -hmm. So I had sort of an L shape in my room so that if I were teaching Alexander technique, I'd be facing one direction so that I could sit at a desk in front of my camera, but also get up and stand if I needed to. And the other direction I had uh, set up so that I could set up my laptop and my phone. And I had a four by four board that I would dance on and my phone would be pointed at my feet and my laptop would be pointed at me with before Zoom had a way to share computer sound, that was a new thing added partway through the pandemic. I had a whole setup with a microphone and separate earbuds and different ways to get the music into the computer while I was talking, while I was teaching. And it was just really exciting. I, I did a ton of teaching artist work. And the thing that was good about that was that it's very hard to make a living as a teaching artist because you're not getting paid for the time that you're driving back and forth to the different schools oh, to yeah. teach. So, yeah. so it's, it's almost impossible to make a living unless you, you get into a good situation where you can teach multiple hours at one school before you get in the car again. But I was at home and I was all online. So I would teach two Alexander classes and four dance classes and go out to the living room and have lunch with my family or, you know, go take a walk in between to get some fresh air. And I was learning technology and I was exploring with social media posting and I learned how to use Canva and I learned how to use um, video editing software. And, mm -hmm. and I had energy to juggle all those different things. It, it was really fun. And I, I was, I was almost embarrassed to share that with people because I knew that there were a lot of people really struggling during that time. And so I, I really didn't, I didn't say a whole lot about it, but for me, I felt healthy. I was eating well, I was exercising well, I was doing things I was excited about. And between all the different classes I was teaching, I was also, I haven't talked a lot about my private practice on this podcast, but I, I was, some of the classes I was teaching were classes that I developed myself or with a colleague as part of my private practice. So I wasn't working for anyone else. I, I was doing it myself. So I was between that and the uh, pandemic money that was coming, um, I was really making a decent living without exhausting myself. And so there was sort of a, that little golden period of time when things were going really well and there was a lot of growth. As we came out of the pandemic and people were tired of doing things on Zoom and people were going back to their lives in person and they, they didn't have the same schedule anymore, um, the group classes that I built up online, they dwindled uh, and I was not able to keep them going because, because people were not available anymore at the same times. So I, I started rebuilding my private practice, which really has never fully come back um, since the pandemic. I have a, a handful of private students, but students who used to come every week now might come two or three times a month or just show up every once in a while. Some students never came back. Um, you know, there's a lot of, because we're so aware now of not wanting to make other people sick, I have a very open cancellation policy so that people yeah. don't lose money if they need to cancel if they're sick, so that they don't make me sick, so that I don't make them sick. You know, if somebody in my family is sick, I will, and I'm not talking about just COVID sick, I'm just talking about in general, 
I'm so aware now, you know, when I work one-on-one, I'm, I spend a long period of time within a few inches of people's faces. So, so things just really look differently than they did before. So right now, most of my income comes from adjunct work and a small portion comes from my private practice. And I've joined a, a mastermind. I actually joined it during the pandemic as a way to sort of learn to think of myself like a business. And that's when I started calling myself a solopreneur instead of a freelancer, because I needed to really change my mindset that I am in charge of my business. And I started learning how to make a business plan and a marketing plan. And, and I'm in the process right now of rethinking how I want my private practice to look. Uh, I'm in the process of redoing my website. It's very old right now. So I'm, I'm um, it's still showing, but I've got some new pages that I'm working on that in the next couple of months, I'll be going live. Uh, I'm in the process of looking at how to create a video course that will live on the internet, whether I'm in the room or not. Um, it, you know, it, when you do this kind of work in order to make a living, you have to keep being creative. You have to keep looking for new opportunities and you have to keep changing according to what it is that people are looking for. So that's where I am right now. I think that's one of the best statements I've heard about being an entrepreneur or a solopreneur is you have to constantly be changing and growing. Mm -hmm. um, and that is so true. You, you can't rest on your laurels. You can't keep doing it the same way all the time. And you have such a specialized field. It's not like everybody's going to be coming to you. Uh, right. So you have to make it more accessible and interesting for people to to want to consider it and continue doing it. So thank you. I think that actually is a beautiful way to end our episode because that is a beautiful pearl of wisdom. <laughs> yeah, and I'll add this one segue here. The final, we had a chamber of commerce meeting this morning in Lake County and this old school guy came back and he's he's just in a polite way railing us. Do you have your business plan? I didn't raise my hand. Do you have your sales plan? I didn't raise my hand. It's in my head, but not in, it's not written down yet. So I may have to do some of that over the holiday. And with that said, it, whether you've been in business 25 years or two, wherever you see yourself, keep yourself accountable. So with that said, we have reached the end of the hour. And I need to thank Cynthia for keeping us on the level, and on time today. <laughs> You're welcome. And I'd like to thank Amanda for coming on to the show today and sharing her journey into stuff I never knew existed and sharing her insight as a solopreneur in the performing arts and teaching. Thank you so much. I've had a wonderful time with you. You're so great to have you as our guest. If you missed some of the show today, you can listen to the replay on Thursday at 1 p.m. Central Time on WVLP 103.1 FM or live stream at www.wvlp.org. And we store the past shows on Mark's website at www.mondocorm.com forward slash podcast. Or you can listen to the podcast on your favorite app at any time. We're listed in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and Podbean. 
Just search for Mark Mondo and the show will come up and you can subscribe to the show for the latest updates. And the show is now on YouTube. Just search for Mondo CRM or Getting Down to Business with Mark Mondo and the episodes will come up on the YouTube feed. Thank you very much for spending time with us today and we look forward to you joining us again next week.